Hey guys, welcome back to the Swish Waterlead Podcast, brought to you by our wonderful major sponsor, who is of course Swish. Now if you have a friend, family member or anyone in your life who is a sports lover, then a Swish from their favourite sports star is the perfect gift idea, I tell you. There's rugby legends, NRL stars, heaps of your cricketing heroes and heaps more on there. To order is super quick and easy and you can get an extra $15 off your order if you use the code WATERLAD. And the best part about it all, my favourite part, is that up to 70% of the proceeds do go to the great cause, which is New Zealand Kiwi Kids Charities, so you can feel super good about your purchase. So go get your mate a swish today, and I'll leave a link in the description, so all you need to do is go click on that. Also, Pomeroy's are offering Waterlad listeners 20% off their amazing coffee and tea products, which includes the incredible Waterlad coffee blend, which is made especially for Waterlad listeners and there is no better coffee to listen to an episode of Waterlad than the Pomeroy's Waterlad Coffee Blend. It's seriously good stuff. If you haven't tried it yet, then now's the time. I'll leave a link in the description so you can just go click on that and check out all the products available. And the promo code is LAD03 to claim your 20% off. Go get amongst that. Lastly, Tim the Lad Bateman has an offer for you that you do not want to miss. So have a listen to this. Cheers, Jimmy. Are you looking for an exciting career for life after rugby? My name's Tim Bateman, and I've been a professional rugby player for the last 17 years. My plan for life after rugby was to get into the wellbeing and recovery industry, so I built O Studio, New Zealand's largest wellbeing and recovery centre. O Studio has given me a career option where I can take advantage of the skills I've built through rugby. It works for my family, it lets me own my own time, and it's given me the financial freedom I need to do what I want with my life. It's an exciting time for the wellbeing industry and we're looking for top lads to be a part of it by opening your own O-Studio. If you're interested, head to ostudio.co.nz slash lad to inquire. Back to the show. What a lad and what a coach and what a butcher. Yes, today I'm joined by a lad of many talents. He started off as a gun rugby player playing for the Tasman Marco Bay of Plenty, the Crusaders and the Chiefs before becoming one of the best butchers on the planet. And he's now quickly climbing up the coaching ranks as he's about to be the head coach of the Tasman Marco for this year's Bunnings Cup. It is one of the great lads, Dan Piggy Perrin. Welcome, mate. Cheers, Jimmy Ma. Thanks for the intro. Stoked to be here. Mate, looking at your top, the butcher's on, you're ready to go. The 19th Warrior, mate. How good was it to have them back in town the other week and, uh, yeah, proudly rocking the butcher's top there, so mm. representing. How good. But, mate, busy time of the year for you. Um, appreciate you coming on the podcast. About to get stuck into the big busy season with Tasman Marco, um, co-head coach this year. How's it been? Yeah, it's been awesome, mate. The lads have slowly started rolling into town over the last couple of weeks and, uh, yeah, we're just chipping away and reconnecting with them and, and setting them up for what's going to be an exciting competition. So, uh, yeah, can't wait to hook in. Really looking forward to it. How hard is it to sort of set up the season without most of your team here while you're, while you're preparing? Yeah, I guess we're pretty lucky. Corny and I have both been in the Tassie 
uh, set up for a few years now, so uh, we know how it rolls. And mm. yeah, like you said, that's tough with them not being here, but uh, they roll in. The trainers are doing a fantastic job reconditioning them in, uh, in the two weeks that they get with them. And mm. and uh, yes, yeah, just uh, they know the blueprint. We roll into it and get stuck in. So, and how's your job changed from like last year or previous years where you've been involved? Yeah, there's a uh, little bit more off-field stuff as a co-head coach. You know, last couple of years has been involved in the set piece, but getting alongside Corny and the, around the contract dean and the planning and uh, around setting up our team as well, which uh, you're in too, Jimmy Ma. So um, just been setting all that up really. But uh, like you said, uh, we've been in the environment for a few years now, so uh, we know how to set it up and uh, looking forward to it. And uh, a couple of... I guess big shoes to fill um, with Shane Christie and Andrew Goodman, the GOAT. Um, I guess stepping away gives you guys an opportunity to step in there, but how do you feel around the pressure of um, filling those shoes? Oh, no pressure at all. If anything, the pressure's a privilege, you know, and uh, they've set this club up really well and um, what they've done for, for this union over many years, mm. um, I think, has paved the way for, for Coy and I to come in and, and take a, take the reins. And uh, we had a real good passing of the bat in with Goody at the end of last year and start of this year. And um, Matey's still heavily involved. There's still WhatsApp messages every day <laughs> wanting to know what we're up to. So um, that's good, mate. You know, he's passionate about the union and so are we, and we only want to see it succeed. So... Uh, they've done marvellous things and um, they've set us up well to take it over. So, yeah, it's um, you've been really privileged to be to work with them over the last few years too. Mm. Clark Dermody as well, obviously. He was the year before where um, it was probably a bit more specific to your role, but must have learned a little bit off him as well. Yeah, oh, he's a great man, Derms, and to come in and do a bit of my apprenticeship under him uh, a couple of years ago, learned a heap off him. He's a great uh, character and, mm. and a real student of uh, set piece play so uh, to be able to sit underneath him and, and learn the dark arts of coaching the scrum and the line out yeah really really lucky um, to, to for him to give up his time to help set me up as well so yeah still he's, he's another one that's been a massive part of setting this union up mm, Exciting times but um, let's get to the players, any players who you think are going to have a massive season, who are you excited to see out there um, this year? I'm excited to see them all, you know, we, we had a good group, I think of about 28 players playing Super Rugby, so some of those guys, it was their first year at Super Rugby, the guys at Moana and, and the Drua and a few guys floating around the other Kiwi Super teams and really excited to see how they come back into the fold after the first six months being involved in Super Rugby and from what I've heard and what I've seen so far, it's it's good things, so uh guys off the top of my head, Willie Havili, uh, Levi Amu has been outstanding uh, Luca Rinch. Here he is. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get a front rower in there, mate. You know it. Uh, he'll appreciate the shout-out. Uh, Max Hicks, another one. Yeah. Um, guys that been their first full year of Super Rugby and uh, to see what they come back and the nick they come back in and how excited they are um, just flows through the group. So can't wait to see them get out on the track. Mm. And it's fair to say you do have a pretty special bond with um, that man, Luca Rinch, uh, father-son, a lot of guys call you. But um, how's that relationship formed? Oh, it's been good, mate. I think ever since he was at uh, Nelson College in the first 15, we started working together and just trying to help each other out really I was a new coach he was a player trying to make it and um, again just trying to get better with the with the scrummaging and 
he was an exciting young prospect at school and um, just took a little bit of nurturing and, um, you know, just the work that we've done and uh, the relationship we've formed over the few years is probably pretty evident throughout the team now <laughs> that we get along all right and a uh, fair bit of banter, but no, nah, he's a good kid, so he's got a big future. Right, he's a special kid, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but I do want to know a little bit more about you, get to your journey. Um, you're not just a rugby coach, like I said in the <laughs> intro, you were a player first and, and a butcher, so plenty to chat about, but let's start at the start for you. Um, what was your upbringing like? Where did you grow up? Yes, yeah, so I was born and bred on the east side of town in Christchurch and New Brighton and Bexley. Um, unfortunately, all the family home and everything was demoed in the after the earthquakes, but okay. uh, yeah, grew up over that side of town and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, spent a bit of time on the west coast as well. Uh, in a wee town called Ahara, and um, that helped shape uh, my teenage years, the early part of my teenage years, and uh, it was a great place to grow up, just the freedom of the outdoors. And uh, When did you move over there? Uh, it would have been the start of high school. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, went straight over there into Greymouth High School and yeah. uh, chipped away over there. I mean, had a good core group of friends that have still got mates over there now. True. And, um, yeah, really enjoyed my time growing up there with my two younger brothers, so on the dairy farm and running amok. Well, yeah, shit, you would have been <laughs> into it. And were you playing code over there? Yeah, playing a bit of footy, mate. So it was, uh, you played rugby and league. So we had rugby on a Saturday and league on a Sunday. Uh, rugby for Blaketown and league for Wairaka Hornets on the Sunday. So, uh, yeah, it was a big old weekend. We were pretty poked <laughs> on Monday getting on the bus to go to school. But, uh, yeah, loved it. Loved that part of uh, growing up. And, yeah, mem- some f- real fond memories on the coast. Did you go good at code, either one? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed. Yeah, I enjoyed playing both. Yeah, it was uh, well, pretty much all my rugby mates played league on the Sunday, and uh, the defensive side of league really enjoyed, mm. and probably that helped me in my rugby career a bit later on. But uh, yeah, really enjoyed it at the time over there, and um, it kind of helped set me up to to come back and finish my high school. Uh, so I came back over to Christchurch to finish high school at uh, at Aranui, so um, which was yeah, real special. So why the move back to Christchurch? Uh, footy was starting to go pretty good and, and something I'd sort of, you know, started to focus on could be a opportunity once I left school um, to a, a chase a dream, I guess. And, um, yeah, like I said, it was going pretty good on the coast and um, my dad had stayed in Christchurch, so there was an opportunity to come back and live with him. And uh, it was around finding which school to go to and uh, there were a couple of offers to go to private boys' schools, but um, stayed in the public and... Uh, my whole family had gone through Aranui, so at the time they'd uh, set up a sports academy and a, a rugby academy was just about to start as well, so I uh, came back over from the coast and did my sixth and seventh form, year 12 and year 13, uh, in their rugby academy, so sure. um, that was yeah pretty pretty unique at the time and probably a little bit ahead of the time, actually. we uh, You'd do sort of half your day of mainstream school and the other half of the day would be um, rugby-specific training down at uh, QE2. So sure. Half the school every day? Half, 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 a, half a school half class. Half a school class. So you might do the first two morning periods in mainstream school, then your last three would be doing rugby, and then the That's Tuesday crazy. would be first three school and last two rugby. So, um, yeah, that was awesome, awesome time. And, again, played rugby and league uh, through the – um, year 12, year 13. Were they successful? Obviously with that programme, it'd be hard not to be. Uh, the rugby side of things yeah, was new for us. A lot of the boys had played league yeah. mainly leading up to that and we had a real uh, real good coach and John Rangahuna who's put a lot of time and effort and was really passionate about the rugby side of things. And uh, We made a few finals and, and semi-finals. I think uh, one year 
we had a first fifteen semi final against Christ College on the sad day that we lost, and then uh, played the league final against St Paul's on the Sunday, which we won. Oh, so yeah. um, she was a big weekend, <laughs> and uh, you had to get over the rugby loss pretty quick. And the the, the celebrations after the league win were, were uh, there was no school on Monday. So <laughs> were you uh, always a hooker? In rugby? Yeah, always a hooker in rugby union, so um, no transformation from loose forward to uh, never being blessed with those fast twitch fibres, <laughs> Jimmy. So, uh, yes, ever since I started playing footy, I think I was in the front row, and uh, my dad's a front row, my brother's a front row. So, yeah. uh, and then, yeah, played a bit of hooker in second row at league as well. So, Oh, hooker, yeah, true. Just a little bit. Piggy Riddell. Piggy Is that where the Riddell. nickname came from? No, no, um, for, no, uh, Piggy, no real story to this one, but the old man was called Porky, so I guess <laughs> it's a bit of a tradition that runs in the family, and it wasn't until I went back to Aranui where Dad had been at school, and uh, he was actually mates with the coach, Johnny, I mentioned before, and he just started yelling and screaming <laughs> Piggy on the training field, so it kind of stuck from there. How did the old man get the nickname Porky? Well, I think he was a little bit rotund in his... Uh, <laughs> oh, no, there's probably a better story than that, I don't think he was a big lad, but... Uh, yeah, just stuck with me from there. Yeah, and so then what was your pathway from school? What You sort of mentioned that this your move was to give rugby a go, make it a profession. So um, how, how did you try and succeed in that post-school? Uh, yeah, post-school was uh, – yeah, I wasn't the most gifted rugby player, so to speak. I was a hard worker and a bit of a grafter and um, didn't make any academies or anything. I made sort of Canterbury age grade teams, under-16s, 18s, 19s. Um, and then coming out of school, there, I wasn't in the academy, so um, yeah, there was a bit of a, oh, I guess a bit of debate with my parents around what what life looked like after school. And, yeah, um, I wanted to have a year off, but uh, the old man wasn't having that under his roof, so uh, I wanted to have a year off and go to university the following year. And he, he sort of come back at me with, "Well, if you go to university, you're probably not going to be able to play rugby." Because uh, you're going to have to work, and if you work and you can't train, so you sure. need to pay for university. I'm yeah. like, oh, okay. Um, and then about two weeks after that conversation, it might have been in term four, um, my stepmother comes home with a with a job advert for a butcher's apprenticeship. So True. that's a whole other yarn. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how how that sort of went. And uh, I just went into a club, a Christchurch Rugby Club, and um, yeah, paved my way through there. Got into the academy eventually, and. Uh, yeah, long story short, a couple of years in the Canterbury Academy, graduated through that and made the shift to Tassie. So. True. Let's go back to the butchery. Um, how <laughs> yeah. did you, so were you keen to be a butcher or you sort of get pushed into that? No, I just wanted to have a year off and enjoy, <laughs> enjoy no school and, and uh, yeah, just live life, I guess, and go to uni the year after. But Dad painted a pretty bleak picture that I, picture I wouldn't be able to play rugby if I went to university. So... Mm. Um, yeah, the job advert cut out of the newspaper and they sort of put it by my school lunchbox. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that's a hint. And uh, the old man actually knew the guy who ran the butcher's shop at the uh, at Walsh's Wholesale Meats. Chris Walsh was his name. And I finished school and, and started my butcher's apprenticeship two weeks after school finished. Sure. So, uh, yeah, it was awesome yeah, to, to start my apprenticeship. It wasn't something I'd ever thought about. Mm. Um, but, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed my apprenticeship. It was hard yakker, as uh, any apprenticeship is. But, uh yeah, really enjoyed it and kind of, I guess, went the long way around trying to get into the academy and probably set me up well for uh, how the rest of my rugby and, and business future um, panned out. So You must have had some sort of interest into 
butchering and cutting up animals or something, or does it just no, nothing? Just no ever. interest whatsoever. <laughs> Wasn't a hunter. Didn't, True. That, that, yeah, I'd, oh, a little bit of hunting on the coast, maybe shooting the opossum or yeah. rabbit or things like that. But no, there was nothing. It kind of just. I had nothing else planned really yeah. after school apart from wanting to go to university and I uh, had my university entrance, I just didn't want to go straight away. Mm. So, um, yeah, the fact that you know, once I went and had my initial meeting with the uh, at Walsh's, it, um, yeah, sort of was able to plan my future a little bit and, uh, yeah, for a year in when I made the academy and then it all sort of started to piece piece together. Mm. So when you are a, a butcher apprentice... What's your what's your sort of role? What's it look like? Are you killing the animals? Are you, what are you just slicing them up? Or no, you're the bottom of the bottom. Mate. Yeah. <laughs> you get all the you get all the good jobs. So um, yeah, dicing uh, meats, sitting on the same cut of meat for hours on end, and um, eventually you work your way up. And I guess it's. Is the dream to be the the guy who's killing them? Is it? Oh no, you, no, you want to be boning them out. Oh, yeah. You know, if you show, you, you got to do your time. It's like any apprenticeship; you got to learn your trade, and you start at the bottom and work your way up. So you you start off making mince and dicing beef and chicken and pork and all the uh, all the jobs that the butchers don't don't want. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it was hard work. It was you know you kind of had to bite your tongue at times. And, yeah. Uh, 5 a.m. in the morning till sort of 3 or 4 in the afternoon, you were, sure. you were full noise, but uh, really rewarding as well at the end of it. You worked hard, um, you got paid well for it at the, at the time, and uh, you got an apprenticeship at the end of it. So, mm. Mate, how good's that? And then you spoke about your rugby, and it was the move up to Nelson Bays where it really, that was the opportunity you were speaking about, eh, where it sort of really started to kick off for you? Yeah, so yeah, at the time I was doing my apprenticeship, I a year into that I'd played Colts grade footy at Christchurch and Matt Sexton was the academy manager and sort of gave me the call and they were keen to have a look at me and um, worked out really well with my apprenticeship um, as I moved further up the ranks and got my butcher's certificate I was able to become a beef boner and you'd sort of go hard and go home sort of uh, get the work done and you're out of there so some days I finished about one thirty, two o'clock and then just go straight to the academy gym and oh, yeah. train for the afternoon and uh yeah, so sort of two or three years of doing that. Got my apprenticeship, got through the academy, and uh, there was quite a backlog of hookers in Christchurch at the time, and some really good, really good players, and couldn't really see a pathway there. And uh, got a phone call from Dr. Wayne Love, who was a oh, love doctor, <laughs> legend, the Nelson Bays coach at the time, and um, there was an opportunity to play Division Two for Nelson Bays, and. Knowing that Tasman was forming the, the following year in two thousand and six, I thought, you know, here's my opportunity, and didn't know anyone in Nelson. I'd only been there on holidays as a, as a young fella, and uh, sort of packed my bags and uh, moved to the Turf Hotel for <laughs> <laughs> for six months as a twenty year old. So it was good times. Is it the greatest place on earth? It was the greatest place on earth at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so was your um, Tasman contract? Was that part of the deal to move up or were you sort of just backing yourself to be good enough and impressed to make it the following year? Yeah, I just had to go up there and back myself. It was a, you know, there was an opportunity with Nelson Bays and you could see a, a pathway to Tasman and I was hearing pretty good things about what was ha- going to happen in Tasman and, uh, yeah, I just had to back myself and go up there and commit to it and, um, yeah, I did. And how did you find that first year playing for Nelson Bays? Obviously, Div 2 probably went all right that year. They were always sort of top four 
um, often in the finals in, in that era. So what was that year like? Yeah, it was really good. Uh, made the final against Hawke's Bay and to play along some club legends of Kahu Marfell, Gavin Briggs, uh, Mark Milne. Were, mm. were, yeah, it was really it was eye-opening for a young 20-year-old coming into that environment, but I uh, really enjoyed it and um, yeah, set me up for the following year. What were the Div 2 initiations and Cordy's like, mate? They must have been loose. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine Briggsy being a hell of an enforcer. Yeah, the off-field was as, as good as the on-field or as important as the on-field uh, performance. So, yeah, we're pretty good at winning that game. <laughs> the third half, I think they called it. <laughs> no stories? <laughs> no yarns that I can think of off the top of uh, – no, the Tassie stories kind of override those ones there. So Yeah, so the following year um, you do make that Tasman Marco squad. Was uh, How did you find that out? Oh, that was all there. I think uh, Dennis Brown and Bevan Cabola were the coaches at the time. And um, yeah, early in the year, I, I got offered a contract for, for that. And um, yes, I guess it had um, kind of made the move worth it and uh, committed to it. And uh, yeah, it was really exciting times, eh? those those early years of Tassie. And there's some fairly good yarns. Um, but uh, yeah, it was really exciting. There was a big buzz around Nelson and Marlborough. And um, yeah, we run a muck in the first couple of years. We probably did. <laughs> <laughs> probably weren't the most professional outfit uh, going around, but we had a lot of fun, and um, I guess that set the pathway up for for where we are now. And we probably didn't have the on field performances, but um, there were definitely some stepping stones that we had to encounter um, in those early years, as any new union or any new mm. business. Um, would have to do to to set you up for the long run, and um, yeah, I think we definitely. Engaged with our community, uh, we got the support of New Zealand rugby and the New Zealand rugby community, and and they really backed us. And once we got that, and um, uh, the good stories, got a couple of good players, a couple of good local lads come mm. through, and 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 we we're away. So, so when you speak about being in the Div Two to that following year, what was the biggest difference, or was that sort of what let them down? There wasn't a big difference between <laughs> them. Um, yeah, I think well, we had a few new guys come into the region and they brought a, a level of professionalism um, to the team. We had uh, Fiki, T. Paulo, uh, mm-hmm. Ben Gollings, Tim Taylor from, from over in Europe. And, um, you know, they kind of set us up. But I guess it was the, you know, it was new, it was something exciting and, and we played on that as, as players off the field as much as we did on it. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it was always going to be tough for us in those early years to compete um, with the, the, the bigger unions, um, but we knew eventually we could get there and uh, took us took our time and, and maybe we could have done things a little differently in those early years, but uh, we learned our lessons and mm. that set us up for where the club is at today. So, so how, did it, how did it turn around? Obviously one of the most successful uh, provincial unions in New Zealand at the moment. What, how did it all turn around from the early struggles? It took a couple of good people to come into it and and really start focusing a bit more on the rugby side of things and and come up with a brand and a a, a DNA as to how the Marco wanted to play. And uh, two guys that were influential that come to my mind were Kieran Kane Mm -hmm. and Leon McDonald, and uh, they sort of came in, and their rugby nous was second to none. Leon was – Kieran Kane was just an absolute scientist of the game and had some pretty out-there ideas but wasn't afraid to to try them and challenge the norm. And I think uh, that was really good because it was a point of difference for us that, you know, we were doing some things that were probably a little bit ahead of our time and other unions weren't doing. And 
And then having Leon's rugby IQ come in there and his calmness and got us working hard and, mm. you know, he'd come from the Crusaders as well. So he had a bit of that background and uh, set us up well. Mm-hmm. And on the field for you, um, obviously you got a couple of good seasons there where you were the starting two. Um, one memory in particular that stands out is your um, pig crawl post-Wellington, um, scored a try, pig crawl back to about the 22 or something. <laughs> Talk me through this one. Oh, mate, we <laughs> We hadn't scored a few tries and we're coming to the back end of the season and uh, Goody Andrew Goodman was our captain at the time and I think it was last game and everyone had to have a try-scoring celebration. You had, right. the, you had the cheeseburger and <laughs> I'd sort of jacked up with our winger, Cookie Blair Cook, that you know if I was to score a try, he was a mad king pig hunter. My nickname being Pig, if I scored a try, I'd crawl back to 22 and he'd run along and stick me like a pig and I'd sort of end up on my back and be bloody looking like idiots. But he never turned up and I'm sitting there crawling back to the 22 and I'm the one who looked like an idiot. And, uh, yeah, the video comes out at least once a month. And <laughs> the boys yeah. love it, eh? So you might be able to get Luca to do that, I reckon, this year. Oh, mate, I was pig crawling through nightclubs all through my buddy. <laughs> Someone would yell out, pig crawl, and I'd have to get down and crawl through the – it was a bloody mess. <laughs> oh, that's right. And any other um, games that sort of stand out for you? There's a big Ranfurly Shield game I remember early on against Wellington as well. Any memories from that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's yeah memories. Uh, yeah, I guess as a union, we haven't had too many cracks at the Ramfilly Shield, and uh, yeah, that was one that I was fortunate enough to play in and also unfortunately missed a tackle that uh, led to a red card that probably cost us the game. So, uh, oh, there's a few other things that conspired in that game against us, but uh, yeah, that was a good memory at the cake turn and. Obviously, those first away wins, I think beating Waikato um, up there was a big one. Beating Auckland at home uh, was another mm-hmm. big yeah. big sculpt. The Canterbury games were always memorable ones. Um, so, yeah, there's some yeah, real fond memories of my time in the Tassie jersey. Mate, the shield, it wasn't your fault. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you still tackled him too high, mate. Oh. <laughs> Julian Severe on a, on a hook, is, you know he's winning that one. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, it must have been a young Julian, eh? He must have been, what, 18, Yeah, 19. he was real young. Yeah. He, was, he was sprightly. He's pretty quick. Yeah. Than me. No doubt. But um, so what? why the move to Bay of Plenty? Obviously, um, Tasman, legend. Yeah, so I'd been with Tassie and uh, been with the Crusaders for a couple of years as well. And I think started off at a wider training group and got a 14 or 15 games when uh, Flinny broke his arm. I sort of got the call up into the, into the squad and... Uh, Got a full contract for one year down there as a third hooker, and then it just kind of got to the end of that time. And um, young Quinta McDonald was coming through at Tassie as well, and he was probably in line for the for that Crusaders spot. So um, yeah, he was going to overtake me at Tassie. He was nipping at my heels there for a year or two, and he's a really good footy player. Uh, there was an opportunity. It was back in the day when you had to be in the franchise to to be able to play for the franchise. Mm-hmm. You had to play your provincial footy there, and. Uh, Bay of Plenty were after a hooker and Waikato, the Chiefs were after a hooker as well so ended up signing a two year contract with the Chiefs uh, up there and, and matching that with Bay of Plenty so mm-hmm. uh, made the move up there with a, another Tassie lad Tristan Moran and, Twisty, um, hey, yeah, what a lad favourite I think <laughs> <laughs> Get him on mate, he's got some good yards uh, <laughs> No, that was good to move up there with someone that I knew and uh, again it was a move where 
I'd never really been to Tarong or Mount Monganui and mm. um, just had to go up there and back myself and uh, give it a good nudge. Mate, we can't skip over your Crusaders career just like that. Um, what was it like going into that environment? Obviously, um, pretty successful side, obviously, forward pack with lots of all-black legends. You coming down from Tasman, I don't know how old you were, what were you, like 23-ish? Yeah, I think I was probably, yeah, 24, 25, I yeah. think, when I got my first crack down there, so... Yeah, I wasn't young. I sort of matured a little bit, uh, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but no, it was it was yeah, nerve wracking. It was yeah, like you said, they were pretty successful and had won a few titles. And lucky enough that Toddy had been my uh, coach at Tasman for a couple of years, and he was now the coach of the Crusaders. So there was some familiarity around that, and there were a few other Tassie boys down there. So uh, that was good. But yeah, it was pretty daunting, you know. You look up to guys like Rich McCaw and uh, I played with a few of them uh, through age grade footy with Crocky and uh, the Franks boys and, and Carter and that so knowing those guys kind of helped and um, but yeah it was definitely a little bit daunting with the success that they had and, and just going in there trying to be yourself I think um, yeah learned a heap but yeah it was an awesome environment awesome culture I guess for me to, to walk into and be a part of and learn from so uh, took a lot out of it. Mate, what was the biggest difference going from Tassie, which in the early days, you know, was pretty loose, to going into that environment with, you know, I was, I, from the outside looking in, it looked like a pretty serious, um, especially that four pack, you got the likes of Brad Thorne, like say Richie McCall, these guys who um, seem pretty straight and narrow. What was it What was it actually like? Oh, I opened my eyes to professionalism, that's for yeah. sure, because Tassie was new. <laughs> we were professionals, but we, we probably weren't in some regards. And uh, to go down there and just see how they – operate and set up themselves for the week and to be able to perform on a sad day was phenomenal like Brad Thorne what a machine man mm-hmm. like um just yeah had everything eyes dotted t's crossed and um did everything he needed to do to set himself up to play play well on a sad day and the ultimate professional and you know guys like the Frankses and mm-hmm. and Richie and that as well so being able to see them and what they did uh for me um, being a new to that environment uh, kind of helped me set me up for the rest of my career as well. So, yeah, really lucky, but learned heaps. And when you got a crack on the field for the Crusaders, how were you feeling? Oh, you just had to go out there and back yourself and, yeah. and trust what you know. And it was pretty simple, the, the messaging that was given to you, just nail your role. And as a hooker, it was pretty easy. So uh, throw your line out right, hit white lock, hit thorn. And, um, yeah, that was about it. Uh, got lucky enough to... Play a couple of tours to South Africa and uh, a couple of semi-finals against the Bulls at Soweto and another one the next year in the Bulls at Loftus Versfeld. So that, you know those are memories that'll stick with me for a long time. And yeah, really lucky to be able to to get those chances. Did you win those? No, we lost both of them. True, yeah, lost both of them. Bulls were always powerhouse back then. Eh? Over Mornay, there, Mornay Stain was yeah, yeah just, space just and all those everything, boys. mate. So in the um, high veld as well at mm. altitude, it was tough and. I think how it had worked out both years, we'd just done our tour, then have to come back for two weeks and go all the way back for a oh, semi-final. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of sleeping pools. <laughs> <laughs> how did you find the hive out? Because um, you're an extremely loud breather. I'm not sure if you've got breathing <laughs> troubles or not, but <laughs> how did you find breathing up in altitude? <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> you've thrown me now, mate. Oh, no, it, wasn't, it was one of those things that just wasn't talked about. You know, it was there, but... If we didn't talk about it, it wasn't a thing. So, oh, true. You know, just did it. You, we didn't focus on it. 
wasn't going to become an excuse for us. So wasn't really spoken about much, to be oh, fair, not until we got back. So and not until you sort of think about it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, we were, we were fairly buggered by those back end of those semifinal games. Just the nature of how our tour had been and having to come home and go back again was fairly tough. So yeah. That's interesting. I always thought teams would sort of prepare for um, handling that or stuff, but... If you were doing going there now, would you talk about it, or would you oh, make a plan around it, or you're aware of it, but it, I don't think it influences what you do yeah. um, too much. You still go out there to play footy and play in it, uh, the style of footy that you need to play to win the game. So mm. um, yeah, I don't think it becomes a part of your tactics, or mm. uh, it didn't at that time anyway. Yeah. So then you left the Crusaders because Quinn and McDonald was coming through the ranks. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. And then you got the opportunity at the Chiefs. Um, yes. Move up to the Bay Plenty. Um, what was it like moving up there? Yeah, and well, living with Twisty, obviously. <laughs> yeah, living with Twisty had its uh, had its moments. Uh, we had a lot of fun, but again, got to play with some awesome players up up at the Bay and at, and at the Chiefs as well. Um, Liam Messam, Stephen Donald uh, at the Chiefs and Bay of Plenty. We had Colin Burke, Tanner Latimer, yeah. Mike Delaney. So yeah, real good group of lads in both teams again, and uh, really enjoyed my time up there and and loved the difference in the cu- differences in the culture. Um, and Bay of Plenty was similar to the Tassie. You know, we uh, a lot of good players. Probably could have been a little bit more professional on the field um, um, with how we set ourselves up uh, to play as athletes. But, uh, yeah, it's a good times. And was it just you and Twisty living together? Uh, Myself and Twisty and uh, Sam Kane actually had come down. A young Sam Kane had uh, been put in with us. (laughs) (laughs) Hell of an introduction for uh, the future all-black captain to be living with you two crook roosters. Young country lad from (laughs) Reparo coming in with a couple of front rowers from uh, Nelson and and Marlborough. So, uh, no, we had a good time in that flat. Uh, Yeah, it would have been a bit of an eye-opener for him, but uh, no, we, we enjoyed it. Mate, what was Twisty like to live with? No, he was good, mate. He's an uh, awesome character and a lot of fun, uh, pretty intense as well, real mm. deep thinker of the game and life. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we had, we had a lot of fun together and, yeah, there are moments that, you know, I look back on and, and yeah, they were good good memories. Mm. And were you moving back and forward from Hamilton to Bay of Plenty? Did you do that a couple of times? Yeah, did that a couple of times and um, – my wife and partner at the time, Nikki, she was back in Nelson as well. She was a school teacher, so there was a bit of commuting. That oh, yeah. It wasn't a cheap flight out of Tauranga to Nelson that True. one. So, um, yeah, there was a fair bit going on. And the Chiefs didn't get, didn't see a lot of game time. There's Hick Elliott and Alan DeMelmich there mm. at the time. So, um, yeah, they were the, the two gun hookers up there. But, uh, yeah, enjoyed my time up there. Two years long distance. Two years long distance. Nikki was coming up a lot as well. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just what you had to do in those times. Yeah, yeah. She had a pretty good job at the at the local high school. So, so who were you living with in Hamilton? Oh, Ben May. <laughs> You're kidding, mate! <laughs> All the lads. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, mate. Oh, we had some ideas in that place. That, uh, <laughs> no, we had the dog Swag, and uh, he pretty much got a, he got the run of the the flat. Uh, Phil Burley in there as well. Oh, true. Um, so there's a good group of us, but Bam and I sort of stuck tight as. Um, another Nelson lad, and um, oh, we yeah, f- yeah, crazy. <laughs> Mate, all, all the water lad listeners will know a fair bit about Ben May already from his episode. But mate, what was it like living with him? Was he was he like that all the time? Yeah, no, he's a good lad, yeah, absolute lad, and oh, we just worked hard, played hard, and uh, had a lot of fun together, and 
if we weren't out on some mischievous duck hunting, bloody <laughs> duck shooting competition or boosting back over to Mount Monganui to get sushi on our days off or <laughs> we're, <laughs> we even tried to live on a budget at, for some point just eating spaghetti bolognese five days a week. And, <laughs> what was that all about? Oh, mate, oh, I don't know what we were trying to do. We didn't <laughs> achieve it, mate. He's got a metabolism like a bloody racehorse so he could get away with it and I just kept blowing out. So. <laughs> I don't know if you're stitching me up or what. Was that something you always struggled with um, through your career, was keeping your weight down or your skin folds down? How could you tell, Jim? Oh, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, mate. <laughs> no, it was funny you say that, how'd you know? Uh, it was a bit of a battle, yeah, or wasn't naturally gifted uh, with, a, with a fast metabolism, but mm. uh, yeah, the 500 cows at 5am at the Chiefs with <laughs> oh, true. Phil Healy and Molly Rifle wasn't wasn't nicer. Was that for being having skin folds too high? To, yeah, too high with your skin folds. True. And, the uh, spaghetti diet got you. <laughs> yeah, <the> carbs, <laughs> mate. Carbs are no good. Uh, yeah, 500 cows at 5am. I think even one year I came back and got an award for being the biggest loser. So, oh, true. Yeah, what, lost the most weight yeah, or skin folds? Skin folds, so yeah, it's claim to fame. <laughs> But you mentioned um, Hicker and Alad de Malmoch were ahead of you as hooker, so did you get much of an opportunity on the field at the Chiefs? Nah, no, nah, bugger all, mate. So, the, yeah, they were pretty highly, I think, both All Blacks at the time as well. So yeah. I was just chipping away in the background and doing what I needed to do to set the team up. And uh, it was an interesting experience at the Chiefs so after being with the Crusaders. Um, and being in that environment and the culture and what had driven that to to going up there. And uh, Ian Foster was our coach at the time and Scott McLeod, so the current All Black coaches, and they were kind of in their early days as well as coaches, really good, really intelligent um, rugby brains. and uh, But we just didn't quite have that mix of the culture side of things right up there at the time. And it wasn't until uh, Rennie came in the year after and I'd finished by then, retired, uh, where they brought in the Chiefs' manner and that kind of flicked the switch for them because they mm. had all the talent, man, they had some talent up there. Mm. Um, but as soon as they got that off-field stuff right and uh, the Chiefs' manner came in, they were away. So, uh, yeah, it was yeah interesting, Re- really eye-opening after being down yeah. in Christchurch to go to Hamilton and seeing what they were running up there. Now, how frustrating is it being in that non-23 um, for, you know, pretty much a couple of years? How, how frustrated did you get? Oh, you push hard, mate, but I don't think you get frustrated. Um, you do what you can do and, and you push your case as hard as you can, but essentially the team's bigger than you and mm. uh, you do your best to set those guys up. And uh, you know, after a while, I knew my place in the team and um, that was my role. So um, you had to provide good banter and train hard and set the guys <laughs> up for a set day. So. Right, and you nailed it. Love that. <laughs> and you mentioned your retirement. So um, how did that come about? Uh, just through shoulder surgery, um, yeah, needed to get that tidied up. I was coming off contract with the Bay, and um, yeah, as I said before, Nicky was at home back in Nelson, and um, Bay Plenty sort of said, I'll oh, get your shoulder sorted, come back up through club rugby, and uh, we'll look at signing you there. I think it was about 32 at the time, so um, yeah, it was time to look at life after rugby, and um, yeah, that's sort of how it came about. So um, I thought I probably could have had another year or two in me, but I'd had, I was pretty content with what I'd done in my professional career and I chased the dream that I was after and, and knew that I had to get into something else. So, And what was that? Did you have a plan, post it, or like to walk away from rugby when you've still got um, some left is pretty hard unless you sort of have something in place. Did you have something in place? No, nothing really in place. We had a house and, and stuff back in Nelson, so I knew I had to come back and find something and always going off to do something for myself was was 
sort of the plan, what that was, wasn't too sure, but I had a courier um, business Did you? For, for a while, <laughs> mate, mate. wouldn't have picked that. Mate, that was tarred yesterday. <laughs> I, I just about got kicked, well, I probably should have been kicked out of the front row club because I was under 100 kilos oh. for the first time since I was about 12, I reckon. <laughs> my, parent, my dad stopped talking to me. But, uh, that, uh, that was, yeah, there was a lot of competition for the tickets and, and that that time and online shopping hadn't really kicked off yet so it was hard yakka and um i enjoyed it but uh it probably just wasn't the lifestyle that i was looking for at the time after <laughs> too much exercise <laughs> too much exercise <laughs> mate that might have helped me with my rugby actually i should have tried it earlier but, uh so yeah i managed to sell, sell that and then worked in a bit of civil construction for a little bit for the local sponsor of the um club that i was helping play a coach for and uh, that was going pretty good. I had a pretty good role out there. Uh, been able to come, you know, start coaching, and and they were backing me and uh, helping in that civil construction uh, area was good. Uh, did that for about two two years. Enjoyed my time there, but uh, we still wanted to do something for ourselves and work for ourselves. And I'd kind of met Sir Peter at a um, sponsors sort of function. We were setting up the opening of the Claudlands Arena at. Well, I and jokingly after the end of the sausages, or I just sort of just said, uh, you know, I'll open up a mad butcher when I finish playing footy. And there'd been no butcher in Nelson for a no standalone, more decent butcher. There was only sort of one in, out in Richmond. And uh, yeah, we kind of just started thinking, you know, is that something we could get into? And mm-hmm. uh, got the backing of our family and uh, fired off an email to the head office in, in Auckland. And they came back straight away asking if we could get to Auckland next week. So. True. Um, yes, you moved things. Things progressed pretty quickly with that. And what did you do up in Auckland? Like, what yeah. do you have to do? Yeah, just well, yeah, to be a butcher to buy into the franchise. Yeah. Uh, so tick. tick. Yeah. Thanks, mum and dad, for that one. Uh, so yeah, shut up there. Had a three or four hour meeting up at the head office up there with Michael Morton and, and Dan Adams. Sir Peter was out of the business by that stage, but uh, his son in law is now running it. He's, oh, yeah. he's Top rooster, so uh, had a meeting with them. Um, drive around Auckland, ran a couple of the mad butchers. Got back to head office. They said, uh, "Find a site in Nelson, and it's yours." So from that meeting to opening, um, took us about twelve, thirteen months to um, find a site, get it prepared. It was yeah, we, we ended up buying the old Stoke Rugby Club and set that up as a, as a butcher shop. So, right, and how hard was that um, to set up? Like, obviously, you hadn't had much experience in running your own business or things like that so how'd you manage yeah i guess that that being a part of a franchise was uh not having that business experience but i could be a butcher being a part of the franchise was you know a real good selling point for us rather than just going off by ourselves they had all the knowledge and know how they sort of had processes in place to set up the shop but it was still massive learning curve going into business and and like Michael Morton was, he was a massive help to us, and still is a massive help um, to to how we run the shop now. And uh, I think we ended up, I think we opened in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, so we've had it eight years now. Um, we just had a uh, our first uh, baby was born, sort of three months before the store opening. So True. it was mad. It was it was crazy time. But the second biggest opening in franchise history and. We were just yeah six well probably seventy eighty hour weeks there for the first sort of yeah two two and a half years it was two and a half years of seventy yeah, hours crazy mate. with a newborn yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it was tough I don't know what we were thinking at the time but uh, massive learning curve and you have the highs of your opening 
um, you know, over the first couple of months and then the bills start rolling in and yeah. you're like, holy heck, this, you know, we've got to pay these on the 20th of next month and uh, sort of you have your highs of the opening and we pumped up the opening so we knew it was going to be big but, you know, you sort of come down and find your place in the market and that took a wee while for us to find that so it was a little bit nervous times there mm. for a about six or seven months in, sure. you know, things start going backwards after your, you know, your early excitement, um, and then you find your place in your market and and start building again from there. But yeah, it was really nervous, but really lucky to have that support we had from our head office. How'd you build the um, opening up so well? Like, obviously, it was a pretty <laughs> big opening. What'd you do? Oh, we had the, the Ute sign written, and we had billboards around town, and uh, I think we we're one of the first franchises to have social media as well. So, oh, yeah. pumping it up through that. Like, 2am the morning of the opening, I was driving around the countryside putting in little picket signs of <laughs> Mad Butcher opening today and Leachy, he rang me at about half past two to make sure I was out there doing it. Good day, boy. How are you getting on? I'll see you at 7am. You know, oh, fly- so he came down. He was flying in for the opening, causing a bloody ruckus that he does. And, um, yeah, it was full, full on, man. Like those, those were crazy days. Like I thought rugby was tough and training and and the day in day out grind of that, but nothing compared to, to mm. owning your own business and and having staff and customers and bills and stuff you had to pay. So yeah, it was massive. Were there times where you thought, um, shit, what have I done here? I, I sort of want to get out of this, or uh, yeah, there was a few squeaky squeaky times there and. Um, we just had to dig down and work harder and the supermarkets came at us real hard like uh, that was one of the tough things is the competition and trying to control what we could control but you know every week I'd go out there on a Monday morning put my new signs out an hour later the supermarket across the road would come out undercutting me and really um, so trying to I guess find our place in the market but then find a point of difference for us that sets us apart from the supermarket was also huge so we spent a lot of time on our quality and customer service and uh, having a real point of difference around our social media and uh, bits and pieces like that so you had to work hard for it like uh, they were coming hard and and we did, I knew that I knew we could stay in it and we could survive, but mm-hmm. I just had to really knuckle down and um, wasn't much time. I was leaving 5am in the morning, getting home at 7, 8 o'clock at night and, uh, you know, as we said, we had the newborn and, uh, yeah, she was tough. Mate, must have been tough on Nikki as well. Yeah, tough on Nikki because she was running the business from home as well, as well as having a, a newborn too. So, um, you know, we learned a lot, but we, we stayed tight and dug in and, and we're at the other side of it now eight years later. And, mm. uh, it's been a yeah, tough journey, but a, a really rewarding one. So. And while you're both under the pump, um, you decide to have another baby? Yeah, another baby. <laughs> that uh, Yes, yeah, so we had our second as well. And, uh, yeah, that was a yeah, really scary uh, time in life for us because Nikki, as you know, um, got a, a virus, a one in a million virus, called Miller-Fisher syndrome while she was pregnant with our our second daughter, Ruby. So um, it's a virus that attacks the um, nerves and it started in her eyes. So I come home from work one day and uh, she blurry vision um, and she, you know, had um, wore glasses and contacts mm. and bits and pieces. So we just thought, you know, we'll give it a couple of days and started progressively getting worse and went to the doctor and to the eye specialist. And next thing we're being told, we've got to go in to see the um, get cat scans because they're thinking it could be tumours sure. and all sorts of stuff. And uh, that was a really scary time. And, and we were, 
yeah, the shop sort of played second fiddle to, to making sure that her health was right and really good family support, Nelson, with her family around us. But um, it was, yeah, just by chance, an absolute miracle that uh, there was a specialist in there at the time who had, I think she'd had a patient like this a couple of years ago over in, in uh, China or Asia somewhere. And, oh, right. and it's a one in a million type thing. Yeah, one in a million. It's not very common. Mm. And, and she just said, I think it's this you need a full blood transfusion now. So um, while being five or six months pregnant, she went in for a full blood transfusion. And if she hadn't had that, she could have been in a whole whole world of trouble. So, um, yeah, it was real, yeah, real scary times, but got through the other side of it. So So she didn't know that this was going to work at the time. This was just a bit of a stab in the dark, just trusting this. Yep, bit of a stab in the dark and and trusting this uh, specialist Mm. um, that she knew what she was talking about. And even then it it was still not guaranteed that Nikki's vision would come back or it would stop the virus eating the nerves. And I think once the virus got down to your throat, it started affecting your breathing, you were going to have to be put on a ventilator and all sorts of things was going to look pretty tough from there. So we managed to get it quick enough, but the the vision still wasn't guaranteed. It could come back in six days, six weeks, six months, six years, but I think it took a couple of months and her vision came right. The nerves naturally repaired themselves and, um, yeah, she came right and she's she's pretty good now, but, yeah, no more babies, so. (laughs) Mate, so her eyes, is it always the eyes for this um, virus? Not 100% sure. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not not sure where it can start, but I think her case has now been put in the medical journals now and, um, yeah, it's a point of reference for... Yeah, if it, if it comes up again, they've, they've got a study there, to a case study to go back and have a look on. So. And how blind was, like, how bad was her eyes, oh, eyesight? She, yeah, she I had to hold a hand to walk. Oh, yeah, really? That she bad? Couldn't see, yeah, yeah, couldn't see anything. So everything was just completely blurred. So. True. So how long was that period when she couldn't see at all and you had to be a guide dog, guide uh, pig? Guide pig. <laughs> By the time she had Ruby, her vision was starting to come right, but she had to have Ruby under cesarean and bits and pieces, but she had come right by then as well. So, um, yeah. Far out, that's crazy. crazy. And then no no after effects, so like now she's sweet. No after effects, just, yeah. That, <laughs> Can't have it. a baby. Can't have a baby. So, yeah, they uh, did that. And, uh, yeah, the business was still tracking along and, yeah, um, yeah life still had to be had to, had to go on, so it was get back into it. Crazy, mate. That is a yarn. So you weren't, you're obviously pretty busy with um, butcher and kids, so you decided to get into coaching. Yeah, <laughs> that's mad. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, tough. Oh, it was always a bit of a natural progression. My old man was a coach and he was oh, yeah. pretty decent at it and worked for New Zealand Rugby as a coach educator as well. So, um, yeah, it was something that kind of naturally just happened and uh, – there's fairly good hookers out there coaching there, and mm. um, front rows make good coaches. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all bald too, eh? All front row coaches are bald. Yourself, Jace Ryan, Chrono. A few bald coaches. Yeah, you know, there is, mate. It could shout. could be mm. something in that. Mate, what do you reckon? It's a secret. Part of it. <laughs> Would you ever hire a um, full-headed hair um, front row coach? Oh, I don't know, mate. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be starting to ask questions, wouldn't you? <laughs> But your pathway, you started with club footy? Yeah, sort of did. You know, a lot of ex-players come out into coaching footy now and that's good. I think there's a place for that. But I sort of knew I had to do it, take the long game with it. And at that point in time with the business, I was still fully immersed into that and there wasn't really time to coach a hell of a lot. So the, the club side of things um, was a good fit for me at the time and 
that started going all right and uh, Chris Goodman asked me to help out with a couple of Tasman under-19 teams and then all of a sudden I was involved in Crusader juniors and development teams mm. and Tasman B and uh, kind of just a, yeah, it was it was good because I, I wanted to learn my trade and coaching and start on the on the grass, you know, at grassroots yeah. and work my way up and, yeah, I think it served me well, so. Was it a hard hard to commit to that? Because there's obviously at that level there's pretty little slash no financial benefit from doing it, eh? So was this all part of the big picture, long-term plan? Yeah, I guess you're, you're giving back to the game, really. Mm. That that was my sort of uh, philosophy around it, and I knew if I worked hard and uh, at my craft of coaching, then potentially there could be mm. it could be a, a, an opportunity moving forward, and it's not really until last year that up until then I'd sort of been volunteering my time and that's kind of what you've got to do. It's no different to your butcher's apprenticeship, I guess. Mm. Do your time and, until you're ready to, to make a step into the professional game and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get that opportunity. So now You must have had good support from Nicky to, I guess, allow you to, I mean, you're pretty, you're pretty busy as it was being a dad, a butcher, running your own business. Um to volunteer and um, give up so much time into coaching, which is obviously time-consuming as well. Huge commitment from um, your wife. Yeah, no, she's um, yeah, she's backed me 100% and really grateful for um, the time that she allows me to go out and coach because it is a massive um, commitment and, and making sure I have that balance. She makes sure I have that balance, uh, sorry. and um, But, yeah, I'm really grateful to have her and her family and my family back in Christchurch, my two daughters that um, – yeah, that are right behind me, and um, yeah, really grateful for their support and, and the time that they allow me away from them. Um, and yeah, it's tough. It's, mm. it's it's a tough gig, especially those early years. But um, yeah, it's paying paying off now. I think. Is it what now? He's co head coach of Tasman, Marco. And what's the dream? What's the what's the goals for your coaching? Oh, that it was always a dream to coach where I played, Jimmy, and um, Tasman gave me my first opportunity. So to be able to be in the hot seat now with Corny is. Uh, really exciting, something I'm really proud of and uh, really looking forward to um, my journey as a co-head coach as well as still looking after set piece. But I think, you know, we'd be kidding ourselves if we, aren't, we weren't aspirational and wanted mm. to have a crack at Super Rugby and beyond and um, obviously first and foremost looking after Tassie and making sure that we're successful here and, and the club's successful for, for a long period of time is my main priority. But, uh, yeah, if Super Rugby, if something was to come knocking, then you'd be silly not to look at it. So. Mm. Well, I've noticed um, being on the podcast, guests I've had on, rugby players, um, generally their career gets a pretty big spike after coming on the podcast. They, they talk about their goals or what they want to achieve. It might be a Japan contract, and it does seem to happen. So... Um, if you're putting it out there that you want to be a super rugby coach, uh, <laughs> I'll be putting my money on that you're a super rugby contract uh, next year for sure. But this will be a good way to test the theory out to see if you are um, a super rugby coach in 2023. Let me know if you get any messages, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if you do want uh, Dan Perrin to coach you, um, head over to the Waterland Instagram page and um, just message me and I'll pass you into the right man. But speaking of the Instagram page, we did get plenty of messages uh, questions and stories for the Mad Butcher, so I will go through some of these. Um, first one, what's your favourite Twisty Moran story? Obviously a big favourite for a few Waterlad listeners. Oh, there's a lot of stories of Twisty Moran, but uh, one you can't beat waking up 
on a weekday morning to twisty in the kitchen, nude, uh, <laughs> cooking your poached eggs on toast for breakfast, mate. <laughs> Can't beat that. <laughs> Can't beat it, mate. And it was fairly common as well. He we had to get his dose of vitamin D. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's a, something that's burnt in my retina uh, forever. <laughs> vitamin D on the D. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not wrong. <laughs> and this was living with Sam Kane. What did a young 18-year-old Sam Kane think of Twisty cooking him poached eggs and nude for breakfast? <laughs> yeah. Sammy Kane was a sleeper anyway. He loved to lay in. So I don't know if he got the, the opportunity. <laughs> he knew it was probably going on and sleeping on, and on purpose, but I knew I was getting a, my breakfast cooked for me. So, uh, no, nah, it, was, it was good fun. Yeah, what, what, living with Sam Kane on Sam Kane, what was it noticeable that he was going to have the career he has um, from that early stage there? Oh, yeah, he was he was a great human, awesome character, and I guess the thing I was, I was lucky enough to play with Richie and and Sammy coming in like the the character and the way they conducted themselves and how they spoke was like it was crazy True. how identical and, and similar it was, and you kind of knew he was going to be something special and. The first time on the footy field, we're involved in a teens tournament for for our club Taronga Sports, and he was just absolutely cutting guys in half. And I'm like, holy heck, this kid's backing it up. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a dust up, and he fronts up and goes toe to toe with a couple of these big island boys from counties. And True. I'm like, yeah, this kid's this kid's not bad. And uh, yeah, just his character and his work ethic and. Um, his mannerisms, you, you knew he was going to be something special. So it was awesome. You're yeah, really lucky to play alongside him as a 18, 19 year old. It was, yeah, just, he was, yeah, unreal. Mate, that is, that is cool to hear. Okay, next question. What's the best cut of meat for a summer barbie? This one came in a few times. People want to get the butcher's insight. Yeah, I love a scotch fillet, mate, with a bit of marbling through it. So uh, hot, hard, and fast on a barbecue, bit of salt and pepper. <laughs> 200 to 250 grams, about the right portion size for me. So uh, that's my go-to over summer, mate. Whoa, mate, the detail in that. (laughs) If you went 300 grams, what happens? Is that anything change? Is that just too much? Oh, yeah, everything in portion, mate. (laughs) Portion controls. 250s. The perfect amount. Yeah, for me, yeah. You might like a 300 gram of those. True. Oh, yeah. So it's just individual preference. Yeah, it's it, not going to help yeah, you. Yeah, ask your local butcher to cut the sides for you, mate. They'll do anything. Oh, mate, how good is that? Get to the butcher and um, stop these bullies, um, the <laughs> supermarket bullies. <laughs> what about bullies. the price slice? What yeah. Did, yeah, what price call cutting. It? Yeah, undercutting. Undercutting, undercutting that's it. Tough, eh? Mate, that's niggly. Okay, next one. How much are tw- chicken wings this week? $5.99 a kilo. Far out. That's cheap, That's hey? cheap, mate. Real cheap. Plain and marinated. So free marinade. Yeah, well, add the marinade to the kilo price. So five oh, yeah. your marinade's included in the kilo price. That wouldn't be much, so would it? Not a hell of a lot. Your Chinese honey marinade on your chicken wings. Get them on the barbecue for the All Blacks tonight. <laughs> oh, mate. Have you got any discounts for Waterlad Ad listeners? 20%, have... mate. You come Could and you? tell us, you know, Jimmy Mar, have a bit of merch on even better. <laughs> 50%. <laughs> oh, hey, hang on, mate. I've got to put shoes on the kids next year. <laughs> 20%. Is this legit? Legit, mate. Yeah, 20% if you say Waterlad Ad at the counter. You listen to this podcast, you say Waterlad Ad at the counter, we'll go 20%, mate. And this is uh, Mad Butcher's. Nationwide, or oh, well, not, <laughs> no? Said we will get my bloody hands chopped. Just off the one that. at Stoke. Just the one in Nelson. Oh, mate, love that. So if you are 
listening in the Nelson region or probably in the South Island, it's worth worth the trip up. That's twenty percent. That's good stuff. Okay, next one. Can you give us your best Peter Leach impression? You gave us a little teaser there, but uh, looked like a good one. G'day, it's your old mate, the Mad Butcher. This week at your local Mad Butcher, chicken breast seven dollars ninety nine a kilo. That's right, seven dollars ninety nine a kilo. Get up the Vodafone warriors. <laughs> wow, we mate. I've had some impressions on this podcast before, but that is definitely the top that yeah. beats Celestia Rassi's uh, LeBron James I think that was that was impressive to see live in the flesh have you practiced that or have you learned that oh yeah a lot of a lot of practice you would have seen uh, the Mad Dan's videos on a Saturday morning at the Mad Butcher so I try to take the piss a little bit there and uh, be a bit of time in there practicing for that one mm, so what's the story behind those videos like um, they do they're pretty popular I know with the boys and um, around Nelson um, yeah, I get it. It was just a point of difference of marketing, and um, it was something after I might have been a bit hungover one Saturday morning, and we'll give it a crack and had some good specials to to, to show off. And uh, again, you know, it's just another point of difference for us to that supermarkets weren't doing, and um, yeah, kind of got a little bit carried away with it, and uh, but provided good banter with the customers coming in the store and me being in the store. and uh, big Willie behind the camera He gets his fair share of uh, People wanted to know who he is and uh, So he was pushing it more so than what I was um, And yeah sort of just It actually had a real good effect on the day's sales as well So the customer count went up The sales went up And you know once you've seen the dollars coming True, in You're yeah. like oh I better give this another crack right. And um, yeah it's kind of just It's crazy So you actually could see a massive uh, A noticeable dis- difference When you'd released one of those videos, videos. Yeah no 100% you crazy. could So yeah made a, made a big difference uh, And just provided a bit of banter And yeah. again it was something different so. True Why don't you do one every day Or is that Sort of overkill. Yeah, it's a little bit of that overkill once you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to find content, Jimmy, you know. <laughs> Fair enough, I get you. Okay, next one. Um, what is your best end of year do? This will be good. Oh, the Fountain of Youth for Tassie 2008 <laughs> at the Walker. Yeah, I know every bit of detail of this one. Yeah, that was one of the greats. Yeah, so explain what is the Fountain of Youth. This was my first year in Tasman, actually. <laughs> I had no idea when they said what it was going to be, but learnt pretty quickly. Uh, so the old Walker um, had, a, had a bar that you could sort of walk around and you just leave the keg tap on and it's not allowed to be turned off until the, the keg's emptied. So there's the whole team just walking in uh, like clockwork around the bar and you're not allowed to you got to finish your vessel by the time you get back around to the tap again and the tap's not allowed to be turned off so <laughs> um, that was a, a day two event yeah. um, so there was some pretty messy uh, punters there and um, yeah that was it was a big old day yeah I remember the first couple and thinking oh this isn't too bad and then, oh geez just kept going eh? started getting pretty tough yeah a few unnamed players were taking a few shortcuts trying to were they? Uh, get rid of their pints before they got back to the table in suspicious ways but oh. uh, you know she was she was good fun mate mate there's some good times especially in those early days like you said okay next one What's your current skin folds? This is um, your ex-trainer, Wayne Taylor, checking in tails. <laughs> tails, thanks a lot, mate. You changed my life. Uh, you wouldn't trust a skinny butcher, Jimmy, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but more than when you are doing your courier run. <laughs> yeah, more than the courier run. Uh, more than when I was playing footy, but uh, oh, good question, tails, though. 
uh, he was a good man. He was had a massive influence on me in my early days at Tassie and, and changing my, my body and, and changing my mindset to be a professional athlete. So, um, but yeah, it's not something I'm uh, particularly too worried about these days. <laughs> mm, fair enough. You're a butcher. On a scale of one to ten, how calm are you in the coach's box? Oh, it's been a bit of a work on, to be fair, Jimmy. Mm. Uh, I'm no Craig Bellamy, no. Um, but I think it's important that you you show your passion and and you shout in the right way. And um, I guess it's uh, more so. I guess when we're sending down messages and the communication is probably as as long as that's calm and and you're collected and it's simple messaging, that's fine. But yeah, I'm pretty passionate in the coach's box and get pretty excited. And mm-hmm. I've had a few the old Apple Watch heart rate warnings <laughs> during a few games. Uh, Semi final last year, Levi Amour against Hawks Bay turnover uh, was that, that sent me through the red lining. And, <laughs> but oh, I think if yeah, if you're not emotionally in, in, involved and passionate about it, yeah. then um, yeah, there's something wrong. How often would you um, watch send off the alarm? Oh, I think we had two last year. So, oh, true. Yeah, but no. Just tense moments, is it? Yeah, just tight moments, mate. No, it's good stuff. I love it. So mate. that's what oh, we're in it for. Love that. Okay, next one. Oh, this question's from our major sponsor, Swish. Uh, mate, you should actually get on Swish. Like with Peter Leach, you two would be um, unreal on there. But um, if you could get a video shout-out from any celebrity, who would it be and why? I've got a couple, actually. Uh my first one at the moment, current, uh, it would have to be a rugby coach, Eddie Jones. Oh, yeah. He's an interesting rooster, eh? I'd, I'd love to uh, have a wee message from him, a wee peppy, pep talk from him. Oh, so yeah, we coach his chat. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. there we go. We could probably organise that. <laughs> That'd be good. But, uh, and, uh, yeah, real left field, this one, um, my daughters are actually right into Adele at the moment. Yeah. So they walk around the house belting out easy on me and all sorts of oh. tunes. And I've actually quite been quite enjoying sitting there on a – after work and watching Adele on TV, so geez, there he is. Get her on on the screen singing "Happy Birthday." Or might <laughs> oh, <laughs> can we right make that happen? Or? Oh, I don't know about Adele, but Father of the Year. Mate, I wouldn't have chosen that. I wouldn't have picked you as a big Adele um, fan, but there you go. Oh, she's lost a lot of weight too. She might have started a courier run. <laughs> <laughs> she don't need to start no courier run. <laughs> no, but what a voice she has. Um, can you do a Adele impression? No, there's no, no impression. No, no, I don't yeah. think so. Get my daughters in here. Okay, next time. Okay, last question. Best piece of advice you have for a Waterlad listener? Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, be yourself and back yourself uh, and be humble. You know, uh, if you're not out there, like you've got to be yourself. Don't try to be someone that you're not. Yeah. Um, you've got to back yourself. It's a tough world these days. There's a lot of critics. Um, social media and stuff can mm. you know you can read a lot into that, but I think if you back yourself and and you've got the talent and the skill set uh, to have a crack, then and by all means do it. But remember where you've come from and who's in your corner um, by being humble as well. So uh, it's a bit of advice that's been passed on to me, especially through my coaching journey. So Jesus, I've mate, I I say this a lot, but that was probably the best advice we've had because <laughs> you didn't just nail one thing. I think you covered all three things and nailed it to perfection. So. Thanks, mate. Mate, you're obviously a Waterlad listener because that was prepared, planned advice. And, mate, I love that one because so true. So many haters out there. Back yourself. Be humble. Yeah. And what's the first one? Be yourself. Be yourself. Yeah, crucial. Love it, love it, love it. But, 
Mate, Piggy, what a journey, what a story. Um, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, like you said throughout this, like nothing's really happened quickly for you. You've worked hard for everything that's come to you. So your rugby career, slow build up, but you got there in the end. Same with your your hard work and the butchery and now your coaching. You've you've been grinding away for a few few years now with not much reward to see you succeed and get to where you want to be at the moment. It's been uh, pretty inspiring for a young coach coming through and Mate, really looking forward to working with you this year, hoping uh, we can have a, another good year for Tassie. And, um, yeah, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, mate. No worries, mate. Thanks for thanks for the invite and, and likewise back at you with the podcast, mate, and really enjoying uh, the stuff and the work you are doing. And, and it's awesome to be in a coaching team with you this year. Looking forward to it, mate. How good. And if you are listening, remember, use the code WHATALAD if you want 20% off at the Mad Butcher. Go get amongst that. Love your work.